Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Peter. We'll be looking at chapter 2 this week. We're going to begin by looking at uh, the first 10 verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As Peter continues to write this uh, pastoral epistle, if you will, to the church, He has written them just talking about the the calling of the Christian and the transformation that occurs and described for them the glory that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, after he has spoken about the true, he is about to warn them about the false or the counterfeit. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing. O Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold in your word marvelous things. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you were to ask the average Christian on the street, what the greatest danger to the church is in America in 2013. I think that the majority answer would be something along the lines of secularists, the government, persecution from others, Islam, other false religions. In short especially, something out there. But Peter tells us that the great danger to the church often is not from something out there, but from something 
someone in here, from within the church, from a place of vulnerability, from those who should be protecting the church and advancing the cause of Christ, instead, they are attacking the church, denying their Lord, and causing great damage and sorrow. Peter describes them for us here this evening and we would put them under one rubric. We would call them false teachers. But there is much more to the false teacher than merely what they teach. There is a life that they live and there is an exploitation that they make of others. But the good news is that God is not silent or asleep that He is awake and alert, and that the punishment of those who teach falsely is assured. It is a certainty. And so this evening, I'd like us to see briefly three things from this text about false teachers. First, we will look at Peter's profile of the false teachers. Who these teachers are. A profile of false teachers. And then secondly, he gives us three examples or paradigms of punishment that God has meted out down through the ages, examples of what we can expect to come. And then third, we will see that God is indeed on His throne and that there is a prevailing judgment that is merely being kept back by the mercy and long-suffering of God Himself. But that that punishment for those who deny the Lord, is sure. A profile of false teachers, a paradigm of punishment, and prevailing judgment. Let's begin then first by looking at who these false teachers are. Now, the first and most obvious thing that Peter tells us and that we would expect is that these false teachers bring false doctrine, false teaching. They, they bring bad ideas warped things to the church. This shouldn't surprise us because it is an ever-present danger with the church. Because wherever there is truth, error will rise up. Because as we know, the great enemy, Satan, hates the truth. He will always seek to twist it and attack it. Sometimes in a frontal assault, other times with insinuating words, seeking to mix up God's people to confuse us. We also know, too, that not every error that rises up in the church is a part of some grand assault by Satan himself because men can cause just as much difficulty. Men take advantage of error to their own good, to the harm of others. They will, they will twist the truth to get others to believe things so that they can benefit, whether it is materially or whether it is in the esteem of others. And the Bible is full of warnings with this respect. Our Lord Jesus Christ warned us in Matthew 24 that many false prophets will arise and they will lead many astray. The Apostle Paul, when he was leaving the church, he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And to the Philippians, 
He warned them to look out for the dogs, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And of course, even the great apostle of love, John, warned us by saying, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. This is something the church has always faced, and now Peter is bringing it squarely to our attention. And he is describing for us who these false teachers are. And he does it beginning by analogy to the history of God's people in the Old Testament. You may recall that in the last chapter, he spoke about the apostolic authority and witness and testimony to who Jesus is. And then he said, this is the same as the Old Testament prophetic testimony of who Jesus is. And so now, in a way that highlights it verbally for us, you could think of it as a big structure, A, B, B, A. And I don't mean an 80s pop group. I mean bookends and the middle being the same. And so just as he spoke about the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets, now he says, you know, there were Old Testament false prophets and there are also New Testament era false teachers. Just as the Old Testament church battled for the Word of God and struggled to put down false teachers, so now you will be faced with it as well. So we shouldn't be surprised when people come up and twist the Word of God and deny that the Word of God is even the Word of God, this is something the people of God have battled throughout all of redemptive history. And these type of false teachers are like these Old Testament false prophets. They come without any divine authority at all. You know, that was how you told the difference between a false prophet and a prophet in the Old Testament. The false prophet did not come with divine authority. He did not have divine words. He was not correct 100% of the time. The second thing that was true of Old Testament false prophets was that their message, it seemed, was always a message of peace and security. Don't worry. You can let your guard down. Everything's going to be just fine. Of course, the classic example of that is in the time of the kings when a lying spirit came amongst all the prophets and only Micaiah was willing to tell the truth and to say, if you go down to this battle, you will be defeated. Everyone else was saying, oh, it'll be great. It'll be fine. We'll win. Oh, you're so safe, king. And isn't that also the message that we see even today? Oh, why do you worry so much about heaven and hell? Everything will work out in the end. All roads lead to heaven, don't they? Oh, we shouldn't have fights about these sorts of things. They're not worth worrying about. Oh, why do you really stress about the way people behave and about morality? Everything is just fine. But you see, we look around and we see the world isn't fine, don't we? We see that there's deception that's involved in this. This is a characteristic of who these teachers are. Peter says that these false teachers who come among us will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And what they do is they smuggle in falsehood. You see, falsehood is not something that stands the light of day. It needs to be weaseled in. It needs to have deception involved with it. And he predicts that it will come. Now, I want you to also note something else. This is chapter 2 
not chapter 1. And that's significant. Because you see, before Peter goes on to speak about the false teachers and what they do, he has already laid the groundwork for his own authority under the Lord Jesus Christ and for the authority of God's Word. So we cannot take the reverse tactic. We cannot think that we are helping the cause of the church and of the kingdom if all we are about doing is poking at others who are false teachers and we have not laid the foundation for what God's Word is and why we should believe God's Word. Unless there is a standard, how do you decry a falling off from the standard? And so our first and primary goal should be to describe God's truth to others and to live God's truth so that when we describe counterfeits, they will see the difference. And so what he says here, after having laid his groundwork, is he said they secretly bring in this false teaching. Now, this is not the kind of secret that happens when you when you hide Christmas presents from children or when you have flowers secretly delivered to your wife. No, there is a malicious intent here. There is an intent to harm and it's actually built into the word in Greek. It is something that is brought from the outside, from the side. It is something that is deceptive on purpose, intending to harm. And what it is that is brought are destructive heresies. Now, I think as soon as we say the word heresy, we have a certain picture in our mind that I think needs to be broadened. A heresy, strictly speaking, is not simply some horrible kind of untruth that is easily seen. Jesus is not God. The Bible is not true. No, a heresy is actually strictly speaking, an opinion or a group or a dogma or a sect, S-E-C-T. It is a, a teaching that is often taken far out of context and far out of proportion in, with respect to anything else. And when we do that, often we wind up skewing the picture of God's Word. And so here we have false teachers in Peter's church's midst, saying things that are confusing, disturbing, and out of proportion and balance. But it's difficult for the people to understand and to see that they're wrong. We see that even in our midst, don't we? Ought you to be faithful in following the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, of course. Is that something that the Bible says that God looks down upon and is pleased with? Of course. What if I take it the next step and say the only way that God will be pleased with you is if you are faithful. What you do will depend upon your relationship with God. You see, I've taken something that's biblical, taking it out of proportion and crushed Bible truth, and now I have damnable heresy. It's a very short step. That's how heresy comes to us. It doesn't come to us in a red cape with horns. It comes to us in the fashion of good things that we need to know and need to study, but just taken just a bit too far or just a bit left out. And these types of dogmas, these types of opinions, they are destructive, Peter says, and they are destructive in the sense that they damn souls to hell. This word here for destruction, 
is the exact same word that Peter uses, excuse me, that our Lord uses in Matthew chapter 7 verse 13, where he said, narrow is the way that leads to God, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. Same word. This isn't just about losing your house or having your 401k drop some. It's about losing your very soul. These false teachers are also people who are marked by denying the Lord who bought them. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that God has somehow saved these false teachers and that now they are losing their salvation? No, I think what it means is is that they once were counted among the church. They confessed, not truly in their heart, but they professed and confessed who Jesus was. And you see, they never really believed it. That also helps us to understand about false teachers that they could be in our midst because they can be those that it appears to us were a part of us. But as John says, there are antichrists who come and we know that they are not of us because they left us. That's what the false teachers do. And they exploit others with false words. You see that here And with their greed, in verse 3, they will exploit you with false words. And the irony here is rich, because you see, Peter said earlier, they've accused us of having cunningly devised fables and myths. And that's what we have. But you see, what they have is, they're the ones who are actually guilty of making things up. And the Greek here is, is very vivid, and it's actually humorous. The type of words that they have are plastic. They're moldable, malleable. They twist how they want them to twist. They're made up. They're counterfeit. They're not real. And you see, they take these unreal words and untruths and they use them to buy and sell people. That's what the word exploit means. It's the same word that James uses when he says... We shouldn't think that we know what the future holds. If we say we're going to go into a city and buy and sell, it's the same word. It's merchandising in people, not treating them as made in the image of God. Now, all of this we may acknowledge and say we know that there are people who are out there who teach bad things. That's actually one of our strengths in the Reformed world, that we understand false teaching and we point it out. But there's another, perhaps even more, important component. And that is that these false teachers not only teach false doctrine, they live falsely. They live sensually, Peter says. Many of them follow their sensuality. Now, this is not an isolated instance. That means this is a lack of restraint, a giving of oneself over to the senses and to myself and not thinking of others, let alone of God. And living in such a way that it causes others to stumble and to follow along and to pursue after me. They follow me in my sensuality. It's contagious, like a disease. And as a result, this kind of sensuality and greed and covetousness is obvious in their lives. And it's so obvious that Peter says, It actually blasphemes the church. The way of truth is blasphemed because of the way they live. 
Do you see the irony there? To blaspheme is actually to speak evil. And Peter says, they do speak evil, but the real problem is that they live evil. That's what blasphemes. Now, you all know and understand this on some level. You deal with folks. I'll give you just a recent example from my own life. It seems that the modern Areopagus, the modern area in which we do apologetics, is none other than Facebook. And so I found myself on a Facebook conversation in which a friend of mine made a simple statement. Billy Graham is going to give his last sermon tonight. I challenge anyone to watch it and to talk to me later about it. And 54 comments later, two of the gentlemen, as they were attacking the church in general and Christ and Billy Graham, said, you know, we're just really animals. Morality doesn't count. There's no absolutes. We're really just advanced, arrogant animals. And we develop morality so that we could somehow live better lives. And I said, you do realize those two statements are illogical. You can't say, we're just animals, and hence there's no absolute. Oh, and by the way, we've developed absolutes. You can't do that. And do you know what the response was? Well, you know, Christians live horribly. They lie and they cheat. And what about all these um, abuse of kids? And what about all this greed and all these televangelists and et cetera and et cetera? Now, we may laugh and say, well, he was off point. But how do I get back on point when the televangelists are examples of greed and lust? How do I get back on point when ch children are abused? You see, it's the way the church lives that silences the apologetic of Christians to others. How we live is important. This is especially important for us today in the PCA, in the Reformed world. Beloved, I pray that we have pure doctrine. I pray that we study and we understand God's truth. But if we are not living pure lives, if we are not living lives that testify to who God is, then no one wants to listen to what we have to say. You see, false teachers live out the consequences of their bad theology. They will live it out eventually, Peter says, actually to destruction. They think they've escaped destruction, but it is on the way for them. And then he gives three paradigms of destruction, three prime examples. He says, you know, they think they're going to escape destruction. Have you heard about the fallen angels? If they couldn't escape, how can those who teach falsely and he describes how the angels are now cast into chains of darkness, only awaiting for the final judgment. And he's reminding us that no one, no matter how high on the pecking order we are, no one is escape, can escape or is exempt from judgment. If an angel is not exempt from judgment, how could a king be or a CEO? or a mom, or a dad, or a kid. It's not possible. And if that judgment does not occur right at that moment, but is certain and is prepared and is inevitable, then shouldn't we look at judgment in our context as certain and inevitable 
and something we must deal with now and not something we just push off or kick the can down the road. The second example he gives to us is of the flood. So we have not only the fallen angels, but we have a flooded world. And only eight survive, Noah and seven others. Now Noah's survival tells us something else. That while God's judgment is inevitable, and while no one is exempt from it, some can escape by the power and grace of God. Judgment is inevitable, but we can escape it by faith in God and in the work of Jesus Christ. And Noah tells us something even more, that we who know this are bound and obligated to tell others of this escape, even when they mock us. Now, I know that you have people at your office, at your school, in your neighborhood, who don't want anything to do with Jesus. They think you're a Jesus freak. They roll your, their eyes every time you mention the Bible or something. And you think, well, this isn't worth it. What, you know, I can't even understand. Now, I want you to picture people coming up to you to roll their eyes and to mock and to make fun for a hundred and twenty years. That's how long Noah put up with the mockers. 120 years. You see, we who possess the truth, we who know that God's Word is true, have an obligation to bring this escape to others. The third example that Peter gives is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. The filthy cities, as he describes them. They are locked in filth of sin. And Peter even says, this is a pattern of judgment that will be revealed to all throughout the ages. It has been said that if God does not judge America, Sodom and Gomorrah deserve an apology. And I think on many levels that's true. Because you see, the pattern of Sodom repeats itself in other places, other cities, throughout the world and throughout history, because it is the story of man locked and chained in sin. That example also tells us of how difficult it is for the godly to live a life in the midst of ungodliness. Do you see how Lot is greatly distressed and how he is tormenting himself just by being around and seeing all of the sin before him? This is another thing for us to remember. Living a godly life in an ungodly world is hard. I know that's a shocker for you. But perhaps you and I should live this week in light of that. And not expect life to be easy. And not expect the ungodly to roll over. And not expect a life of ease and comfort. For you see, this is a pattern, Peter says, that is before us. And then the third and final thing that Peter describes for us, after giving us these paradigms of punishment, he says there is a prevailing judgment that is coming. God has divided the entirety of the world into two halves. The godly are those who by faith have trusted in Christ. And the ungodly 
or those who are arrogant, those who despise authority and seek only themselves. Peter says that God is awake and aware. And don't be confused. He knows how to rescue the godly. He knows your trials. He has the power and ability to rescue the godly from destruction. But at the same time, He rejects the unrighteous. He knows who the unrighteous are. They are already under a certain punishment. This punishment has been reserved to the day of judgment, but just because it doesn't occur before us, before our very eyes, does not mean it is not real. You see, the world is not like we would like it to be. That judgment has not been carried out. But it's only God's patience and mercy that restrains that. There is only one hope for all alike. For the godly or those who are ungodly, those who are self-absorbed, those who despise authority, those who are wrapped up in themselves. And perhaps that's you this evening. Perhaps the Lord is pricking your heart, telling you that you're a bit too self-absorbed. That you are not respectful of God's authority in every area of your life. That there are some areas where you've tried to wall them off from the Lord. And the answer is there is only one hope for that area, only one hope for you, only one hope for anyone, and that is Jesus Christ and His work. And that is sufficient. That work is sufficient to snatch Lot out of the fire of Sodom. It is sufficient to protect Noah in the midst of the flood. It is sufficient to defeat legions of fallen angels. And it's sufficient for you as you live your life this week, no matter what challenges the Lord puts in your path. So this week, look to your doctrine. Look to your life. But most of all, look to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You that You have given us this warning that there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that You would write this Word upon our hearts, that we would seek after You and You alone. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.